0: So, I'm in church, why don't you bow your heads? And let's uh, let's pray together. Father, I'm reminded this weekend of how desperate we are upon you, how much we need you, God. I think, especially in light of what's going on in the world right now, God, with this God genocide of brothers and sisters in Christ going on in Iraq, with this this tragic situation in Ferguson, Missouri, with God, the humanitarian crisis at our border, we, God, know that we need to hear from the Prince of Peace. Some of us have our own trials, our own hour of darkness that we're walking through. And so I pray that his voice would be so crystal clear today that I would be able to get out of the way and he would speak through me. God, I pray that not only would you speak peace and tell the storms in our lives to be still, but God, you would also... Use us as conduits of your blessing and healing to a world that so desperately needs it. God, we need you. And we confess our inability, our inability to teach each other, but we need you to do it. So we ask for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said at the summit church. Amen. Well, welcome back, those of you that have been traveling for the summer and Uh, especially our college students, this is always a big weekend that they'll begin to trickle back in. Uh, We are beginning a new series this weekend uh, 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 on the book of Psalms. Uh, We're going to see how an Old Testament book that's written nearly 3,000 years ago um, deals with some of the most poignant existential questions that we ask today. Um, The first question that we're going to get to is the question, why am I not happy? Why am I not happy? A lot of us, I think, are thinking about the, shall we say, the enigma of happiness, with the tragic death this week of Robin Williams, a guy who spent uh, most of his life trying to make others happy, but was apparently so unhappy in his own life that he chose to end it. And I realize that there are some pretty severe neurological medical issues that were contributing to his his depression, and I'm not trying to brush over those, but it's a very sad situation. Uh, And made a lot of people ask the question, what does it mean to be happy? Can you be happy? And if so, how? I don't know if you saw this week, but Lauren Bacall, who was, they say, the last of the golden era um, Hollywood actresses, golden era like Humphrey Bogart and Judy Garland, Um, she was the last one living, and she passed away this week on Wednesday, Um, and the article that I was reading about her said that she, all of her life, went through these cycles of happiness and despair. Can you be truly happy in life? So let me just ask you, straight up, directly this weekend, are you happy? Right now in this situation and where you are in life, are you happy? I talked to one Christian girl who was a um, very committed Christian. I'm um, very active in the church who said, I, I'm not sure I've ever totally been happy. Maybe you're the kind of person that goes up and down. You're happy one moment, one season, then you're unhappy the next. Uh, let me ask the question a different way. If life did not change at all for you from this moment forward, And by that I mean, your situation didn't improve, your marital status didn't change, your career did not progress, your body doesn't feel any substantially better than it does now. Can you be happy with life? Google autocomplete verifies that this is a very pressing question. Uh, Whenever I wanna know what everybody really thinks, I just go type in a sentence on Google and see how it finishes it so I know what the whole world is wanting to know. Uh, Here's how Google autocomplete completed the, how can I be? Happy is the very first one. How can I be sure as second? How can I be saved? Get my book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. This should be the answer to that one. Um, how can I become a ball lyrics? That was number four on my uh, computer. And then how can I be pretty? Uh, full disclosure, I was actually looking up how can I be pretty when I discovered that. But uh, nonetheless, you see, how can I be happy? is a very important question that people want to, um, to know. Um, the uh, entire book of Psalms um, opens with the word happy. Uh, In fact, if you haven't done so already, take out, uh, if you have a Bible, um, open it up to the book of Psalms. Uh, If you have an actual real Bible with a thing called paper in it, if you open it right in the middle, it should open to the book of Psalms. Um, If you open your Bible to the middle and it's like somewhere in 1 Corinthians, then you have a New Testament only and Psalms will be like tacked on at the end. Um, But find it, find Psalm chapter one, because Psalms opens with the word happy. Psalms 1.1, blessed is the man. Blessed in the Hebrew language is the word "ashrei," which literally means happy. That's what Psalm 1 is about. And scholars say that because this psalm is the opening to the whole book of Psalms, they're putting it there because it captures one of the dominant themes of the book of Psalms. 26 times in the book of Psalms, the writers are going to deal with the question of, can we be happy, truly happy? And if so, how? Now, I know that at this point, a bunch of y'all kind of roll your eyes internally and say, uh, the pastor's asking us, how can we be happy? I wonder if he's going to say Jesus. You know, you're like, that's just too easy, man. Um, It reminds me of the first grader who, you know, is in Sunday school and his teacher says, "Um, what's gray has four paws and a bushy tail. And the first grader's like, sounds like a squirrel, but we're in Sunday school, so the answer has to be Jesus. Uh, And you're like, I I, I know this is what you're going to say. I I understand you think I'm going to say that, but um, this psalm is a lot more complex than that, and it's not nearly that simplistic. Um, So at least hear this out. Um, I've heard it said that when you're young, you think happiness is inevitable. Uh, You're going to find that special person. You're going to get into that fulfilling job. If you'll be patient, happiness is just around the corner. It's coming. Life is going to be good. Happiness is inevitable, but by the time you get older, it's gone from happiness is inevitable to happiness being, you think, unattainable. Um, I've heard it described as the difference between two of Shakespeare's most famous plays, uh, Much Ado About Nothing, and Hamlet. Uh, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, if you've read or seen that one, um, basically at the end of Much Ado About Nothing, um, everybody gets to come home, everybody gets to marry who they wanted to marry, Uh, the person they thought was dead was really alive, Uh, the person they thought betrayed them didn't actually betray them, and everyone lives happily ever after. Um, Then you got Hamlet. Last scene of Hamlet, everybody dies bitter and disappointed. Uh, By the way, spoiler alerts uh, in case you haven't seen those. Um, When you're young and naive, you think life is essentially Much Ado About Nothing it's headed toward happiness. Um, As you get older, you begin to think that it's much more like Hamlet. Psalm chapter one explains that happiness is neither inevitable nor unattainable. It is possible, right? Psalm one. Uh, By the way, for those of you that are new to church entirely, and you're like, uh, what are psalms? Um, Psalm is the Hebrew word for song. So the book of Psalms is like the 150 greatest hits of ancient Israel. Uh, And we're going to look at a few of them, four of them, over the next few weeks. Uh, So, Psalm 1, verse 1. "'Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. The ungodly are not so.'" The ungodly are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. This psalm contrasts the godly with the ungodly. Those who walk with God, the psalmist says, are like trees that are planted near streams of water that have deep roots that bear fruit year after year and prosper in all that they do. The ungodly, by contrast, are like chaff. Chaff was the very um, fragile shell that went around a wheat seed. It was very light and substantial. In fact, the way they would separate the wheat from the chaff is they would, they would put it in a basket and they would throw it up and even the slightest breeze would carry away the chaff so that only the wheat seed would fall back down um, into the basket. The psalmist uses this metaphor of a tree and chaff to show you why those who know God can be happy in a way that those who do not know God cannot be happy he identifies two things that people usually look to to make them happy that cannot, in fact, make them happy at all. All right, so if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's letter A. You won't be happy, he says, when your happiness is based on circumstances. You won't be happy when your happiness is based on circumstances. You see how the psalmist in verse 3 seems to assume that your life goes through seasons? You have springs and summer seasons where the environment is favorable. Then you've got winter seasons that threaten to kill you. You will have drought seasons that threaten to starve you. You cannot cut out the drought and winter seasons from life. And if your happiness is dependent on you being in a spring season, happiness will always be elusive to you. If your happiness is dependent on you getting into and staying in a spring season of marriage— if it depends on you getting into a wonderful summer of your career, if it means getting into a great summer of retirement, then you will always find happiness to be elusive. I've I've been reading a new book by Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And Keller in this book says that the modern approach to happiness is to remove any and all suffering. So avoid pain. And if you can't avoid it, sedate it eliminate disease, become an activist and try to eliminate, eradicate disease, discomfort, and injustice. And these are good and worthy goals and often very Christian goals. But Keller says, listen, no amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. We will never succeed as a human race at removing all pain and suffering. Not in this age, not in the next age, not in the 10 ages after that if we have that long. So if your whole strategy for being happy is getting and staying into a summer season, you will fail. And for many of you, that is entirely your strategy for getting happiness is simply to get yourself into a season of life where things are good. And he's saying that will fail because life has seasons. I know that some of you will lose all respect for me here. But to see how our culture deals with happiness, I went and looked up on WikiHow, which is the great repository of the collective wisdom of the human race, how to be happy. Here are the top eight ways WikiHow identifies you should be happy. Number one, piece of counsel, be optimistic. So what if your life is a huge mess with no promise that anything is going to change in the future? Well, just ignore those facts and just assume that it's going to get better. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. So what if someone pooped on your front porch? Free fertilizer, right? How many things in life is that going to work for? How many things in life, it may work for poop on your front porch, but is it going to work for everything? Number two, follow your gut. Oh, sure. That's great advice right? Your heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah says, and desperately wicked, but by all means follow your heart because that will make you happy because everyone who follows their heart becomes happy. Miley Cyrus, right? (laughs) Number three, own yourself. Own yourself, meaning don't apologize for who you are because you're awesome. But what if in fact you aren't awesome? And what if you have a lot of serious flaws that seriously need addressing? Well, That's a tough question. So let's just ignore that and move on. Number four, make enough money to meet basic needs. That's great until you can't or you don't because you lost your job. And by the way, most of the unhappy people that I know personally have their basic needs that are met. Number five, treat your body like it deserves to be happy because, you know, cancer never um, hits happy people, only hits unhappy people. So that'll work. Uh, Number six, stay close to family and friends, unless they're jerks, of course. And what if your family and friends desert you? Well, you should have chosen better family and friends. Uh, Number seven, have deep, meaningful conversations, unless you're depressed or sad, because then that can be a real drag. Um, Number eight, smile. That's right. If all else fails, fake it. Just fake it. Seriously, is that the best we have? That is the collective wisdom of the human race on how to be happy. By the way, there's other the comments after the eight points were, those weren't in WikiHow. Those were mine. I tried to enter them this week, but they kept getting deleted uh, by somebody else on WikiHow. Um, last week, I contrasted for you happiness and joy. Because our culture's approach to happiness is built on the idea that we get the word happy from, I told you that happy in the English language comes from the root word we get the word happening from. So you are happy when what you want to happen happens. When what you don't want to happen happens, you're not happy. What the psalmist is talking about is joy, which is different. Joy goes deeper than the circumstances and your happenings because it has a source of joy that is not dependent on your happenings. Let me just ask you, is your happiness dependent on your happiness? You need something deeper. If you're really going to be happy, you need something deeper than your happenings. You need roots that go deeper into something that can endure both spring and winter seasons. Later in, in the Psalms, King David would say this, Psalm 47, you have put more joy in my heart than they, the ungodly, have when their grain and wine abounds. In other words, I got more joy in God than people have when their wine and grain overflow. And when I'm in a season where my grain and wine don't abound, I still have God and he's a better source of joy than when I do have grain and wine. Listen to this, for the Christian, seasons of drought can actually deepen your joy which is totally counterintuitive to people. But seasons of drought can deepen your joy because it's in those seasons that you learn to drive your roots deeper into Christ. And in those seasons where Christ is all that you have, you find indeed that he is all that you need and so when you go through a season of drought or winter and you drive your roots deep into the gospel, into God, then you find that when your wine and grain come back, your real joy is not in them anyway. And like David, you say, I got more joy in God than I do in grain and wine. So when the grain and wine's here, great. When it's not, great. Because I've got God and he never changes. Letter B, letter B. He says, you won't be happy when you have no anchor point outside of yourself. You're not going to be happy if you have no anchor point outside of yourself. See verses four and five. The happy man, he says, is like a a tree with deep roots that anchor him. This attacks one of our culture's most cherished myths. That myth is the belief that happiness comes from complete freedom. You'll be happy, the myth goes, when you answer to no one. When you're free to make all your own rules, to define your own meaning, when you're like a room without a roof, that's when you're happy. C.S. Lewis compared this to the fish who decides that he wants to be free by escaping the confines of water. He's swimming along the ocean and is tired of all the tight confines of the ocean. And so he says, I'm sick of this. I'm going to jump out and be a free fish on the land. So he hops out on the shore. Is he free? C.S. Lewis says he sort of, but is he going to be happy? Not for very long, right? Because he's a fish that's designed for water. So he is freest and happiest when he's in the environment he was designed for. The fish was designed for water, Lewis said. The human soul is designed for God. Therefore you will be freest and you will be happiest when you are anchored in the thing that God has designed you to be in. A tree without roots is tumbleweed. Tumbleweed in some ways is freer than a tree, but is it happier? I would suggest not. Look at how the psalmist unpacks this, verse 4. The ungodly, the ungodly by contrast are not so. They're like chaff. The wind drives away. When we're not anchored into something outside of ourselves, there comes a point in your life at which you're just gone. You're forgotten nothing you did mattered. You just blow away. Life is a tale told by idiots, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I think this is Shakespeare Sunday. This is the third reference to Shakespeare, right? But there's no real justice in life. There's no real answer for this yearning in your heart for meaning and eternity. And see, here's what happens. When you begin to think of life that way, an incredible despair starts to encroach over your heart. You say, no, 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 I, I, I'm just gonna have fun while I'm here, you know, YOLO, then you die, right? No, that will work for a while when you're young and naive. But as you begin to get older, you will have to start fighting off this suffocating futility that begins to press in on you. You don't take my word for that. You're like, well, dude, you're in your 20s. What do you know about that? Um, you're still a young man. Um, take the, the, um, the words... <laughs> of Leo Tolstoy. You know who Leo Tolstoy was? He was a Russian novelist. He wrote War and Peace, Anna Karenina, just became a movie. Um, Leo Tolstoy uh, wrote his autobiography, it was called Confessions, and in there he talks about something that happened to him, Uh, he said was completely surprising. It happened in his mid to late 50s. He said, I was in a situation in life where everything was like it should be. He said, "Um, my books were selling like crazy. I'd never have to write another word and I'd be a, a wealthy man. He said, I uh, had a great marriage. My kids love me. Uh, He said, my reputation. He said, the critics love me. Uh, He said, I I was physically strong. I felt good. I was an iron tribe. I was a rock. Um, He didn't say that, but he, he, he said everything was good. He said, with this question in my 50s kept pressing in on my heart, it brought me to the verge of suicide. It demanded an answer without which I can't really live. Here's the question. Is there any meaning in my life that my inevitable death will not erase. Today or tomorrow, he says, death will come to those that I love, and then it will come to me. Soon, not only will I not exist, but no one will exist that remembers anything that I have said or done. So why then go on with the effort? I've always wanted my life to have a meaning, but what's it all for? What's it all leading to? What difference does it make whether or not I do this thing or that thing or nothing at all? For a time it was possible for me to live intoxicated with life. That's called being young. But as soon as one is sober, that's called getting older, it is impossible not to see that life in the face of death is a fraud and a stupid fraud at that. How often I've been told, oh, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't even think about it, just live. I can no longer do that, nor can anybody who really thinks about anything. If your life has no anchor outside of itself, it's chaff. It has no real permanence. Every pleasure is fleeting. It's full of sound and fury, a tale told by an idiot, idiot signifying nothing. The psalmist goes on. Verse 5, the ungodly will not survive the judgment. In other words, not only is life here meaningless, even worse, at the end of a meaningless life, you stand under judgment. You see, the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Which means that one day, you will stand before the Almighty God. God at his throne, and you will give an answer for your life, and you will hear one of two words, forgiven or condemned. What's it going to be like for you in that moment? What is it like if you gained everything that you wanted in life? What if you did manage to keep yourself in a summer season to stand before the throne of God and hear that one-word verdict on your life, condemned? What would it profit, Jesus said, a man for him to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What would you give in exchange for your soul? Think about his logic right? What dream that you obtained on earth, what house, what pleasure, what possession, what relationship are you going to say is worth the trade of your soul for eternity? The psalmist could not have been more clear in laying out two very distinct ways to live, could he? This is a theme that's going to appear over and over in the book of Psalms. There are two ways to live, and you've got to choose one of the two. The man who knows God lives with an abundant, never-ceasing source of joy that endures throughout all the seasons of his life. And when he dies, he is received into eternal glory. The ungodly live with an increasingly suffocating sense of futility every pleasure is fleeting. They have no recourse in pain. They find no deeper meaning in suffering. And when they die, they go into judgment. There are two ways to live. Which of these two ways will you choose to live? Now, the psalmist does one other thing in this psalm, and I want to take a few minutes to show it to you before we close, because he reveals to you the secret to really being happy. It's not enough to simply be a Christian or try Jesus or go to church or let go and let God or whatever you want to say. Now he gives you the secret. It's in verse one. Watch this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Counsel is how you. It's about how you think, right? Nor stands in the way of sinners. Way of sinners is how you live. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In those days, where you sat is where you thought you belonged. The young sat with the young. The rich sat with the rich. The old sat with the old. So in other words, he's saying where you choose to find your identity, where you, how you think, how you live, where you base your identity, here's what he's saying. Let your mind, your behaviors, and your identity be shaped by the word of God. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to be a Christian. It's not enough to be religious or even be saved. You have to drive the roots of your soul deep into the gospel so that your thinking, your actions, and your identity are all shaped by the gospel. The gospel must become an anchor for your soul with roots that go so deep that whatever seasons you pass through, whether a winter of loneliness, a drought of depression, a storm of temptation, whatever season, you have an anchor that keeps your soul steadfast. Write this down, the secret to happiness is driving your roots deep into the gospel. The secret to happiness is not knowing the gospel, it's not going to church, it's not being a Christian, it's driving your roots, the roots of your soul, deep into the gospel so that drought and winter cannot kill you. And in light of that, some of you need to get a lot more serious about two things in your life. You need to get a lot more serious about two things. Here they are. Number one, you got to get a lot more serious about the Word of God. See where he says, verse 2? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. You know why he meditates on it day and night? Because his delight is in it. Because when you delight in something, you don't have to be told to think about it all the time. You just do it naturally. Right? When I first fell in love with Veronica, I thought about her all the time. At any given point in the day, you could say, what are you smiling about? I would say, it's Veronica. When she would write me a letter, I would read it five, six, seven hundred times. I would meditate on her day and night because she brought my soul delight. The idea is that the word of God becomes such a delight to you that it frees you from the seductions of the world, that you escape the pleasures of the world because you got a greater pleasure in the word. It's because you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face that then the things of earth begin to go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And here's the tragedy. Some of you have never experienced that with the word of God. The word is just a religious duty to you. It's just something you put on a checklist. Yet another thing for you to feel guilty about. I don't read the Bible enough. I don't listen to podcasts when I work out instead of music. I don't memorize enough scripture. And it's something that you feel guilty about. And you're like, I got to get better at doing that. But there's no delight in it. And because of that, your Christianity has no joy. It has no permanence. It has no endurance. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, listen to this. Sometimes only mentioning a single word of the gospel will cause my heart to burn within me only seeing the name of Christ or hearing some attribute of God suddenly makes my heart burst into flames. And in that moment, God appears glorious to me, making me have the most exalting thoughts of him. When I enjoy this sweetness, it seems to carry me above the thoughts of my own estate. It seems that at such times I'm at a loss that I cannot bear it and I cannot even bring myself to take my eye away from this glorious, beautiful object and bring it back to myself or my own boring interests. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever experienced anything like that with God? I mean, just be honest, because we're not going to, it's not going to help anybody. You're sitting here faking it. Have you ever experienced that kind of desire with God? I'll take it up a level. Brother Lawrence, you know who that is? 16th century monk, was a dishwasher at his monastery. One little short book called The Practice of the Presence of God. In my copy of that book, I have one section underlined. It is this section. I find myself attached to God with greater sweetness and delight than an infant suckling at his mother's breast. I have at times such delicious thoughts on God that I am ashamed to mention them. Now that's taking it to a whole new level, isn't it? And that level is called the land of awkward, right? (laughs) But if you can get past the imagery there, do you have anything like that in your experience with God? The reason many of you struggle spiritually is that you don't know anything about joy in God. And I'm telling you, you will only escape the pleasures of the world when you have found a greater pleasure in the Word. Look at that last verse, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. See, that's the psalmist's trump card. That word know is a Hebrew word yada. And it's a word that means experiential knowledge. It's used for romantic knowledge, even sexual knowledge. It's a euphemism in the Old Testament for when a man and, and his wife consummate their marriage. And Adam, yada, his wife Eve. They got married, yada, yada. That's what you're, you're talking about, all right? And what the Psalmist says is, God, my greatest joy is that I know you and that you know me, you are intimately tied to my soul, you are my joy, and it is in light of you that all the rest of the things of the world begin to fade in their significance. I've told you that on my wedding day, I think I told you this a few months ago, on my wedding day, 14 years ago, when we turned around and they just pronounced us man and wife looking at this audience that was there to see us get married, there were a couple girls in that audience that I think that at some point I've been interested in. I think I'd even been out with one of them at one point, but I can promise you on that day, I was not going, whoa, man, I can't believe she got away. Oh man, she is so good looking. No, I wouldn't even think about the ones I missed because I was enraptured with the one I had. And it was in light of my delight in her that the attractions of other girls lost all their power over me. The psalmist is like that with God. Some of you have never gotten to that. And that's why you struggle so much spiritually. That's why your Christian life is cold and it's dead. You say, well, JD, I would love to feel that way about God. I'd love to be like a, you know, suckling baby at my mother's breast. But, you know, I wouldn't say it like that, but uh, I just don't. I don't. So what do I do? What do I do? The first thing you gotta do is you just confess your cold, dead heart to God. Can I tell you something I've learned after two decades of being a Christian? Our Lord Jesus never turns away a sick person who comes to him for healing, not once. And when you bring your cold, sick, dead heart And you say, what's wrong with my sick, dead heart? There is a Savior who will never turn you away. And you come to him and say, God, my heart is broken. It desires so many things besides you. Some of you have never gotten the healing from Jesus because you've never been honest with him. You want to keep pretending that your heart is okay. It's not okay. That's why Jesus had to die for it. And so you bring that dead heart to God and you say, would you sprinkle your blood upon this heart and make it new? There is a prayer that I have prayed over the years. It's written by a guy named A.W. Tozer in a book called The Pursuit of God. And what A.W. Tozer says in this, in this thing is he says, he said, he, said, he said, Lord Jesus, I have tasted your goodness and it has both satisfied me and left me thirsty for more. I am painfully aware of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire for you. Oh God, I want to want you. Oh God, I long to be filled with longing. Oh God, I am thirsty to be made thirstier still. God, call me out of this desert wasteland that I prefer to live in, into the luscious pastures of your presence. I pray that prayer because my heart is not what it should be, and my heart will very quickly get reattached to the pleasures of the world. And I bring my sick, dead heart to God over and over again. And I say, God, will you please heal it? Because God doesn't turn away those who bring dead things to him. So after you confess that to him, that's where some of you start, then you need to do what he says in verse 2. You begin to meditate on the word. You see it? On this law, he meditates day and night. That Hebrew word for meditate literally literally means mumble to yourself. That's what it means in Hebrew. It means you become like one of those crazy people walking around talking to yourself all the time. People are like, what are you doing? You're like, I'm just repeating the gospel to myself. You're mumbling to yourself. I've heard one scholar compare this to how a cow chews the cud. You know how this works? So a cow gets up in the morning, eats a bunch of grass, lays down, take a nap. Pretty awesome life, if you ask me. Eat, take a nap right? He gets up two hours later and he throws up the grass that he ate. He regurgitates it. It's called the cud. And he chews on it for a little while longer, sucking more nutrients out of it. Then he swallows it again, takes another nap, gets out two hours later, throws it back up, chews it, does this four or five times until he's sucked out every bit of nutrient out of that grass. And the psalmist is saying, that's how you got to approach the word of God. Write this down. Read your Bible like a cow. You have never heard another sermon application that ended with like the cow, have you? That's a first. Read your Bible like a cow, meditate on it, review it, throw it up, regurgitate it, suck every bit of it that you can get out of it because you will only delight in the word when you meditate on it and it saturates your soul. That's why you got to get a lot more serious about the word of God. That's you got to read it, you got to memorize it you gotta, you got you to gotta study it in small groups. you got to meditate on it. When life cuts you, it's got to be flowing in your veins so that you bleed God's word. It's got to be so close to the surface that when life shakes you, that's what comes out. That's why I'm telling you to get serious about it. Hearing a sermon once a week from a guy who does know the word might inspire you, but it's not going to put joy in your soul when you go through the winter and when you go through the drought. He said, you got to get a lot more serious about the word, which leads you to number two. got to get a lot more serious about the church. See where he says, don't stand in the way of sinners or find your place among the scoffers? You want to know why he says that? Because he knows that sermons can inspire you, but it's your community that shapes you. A friend of mine says it this way, your friends are your future you. Your friends are your future you. You want to know what you're going to look like in the future? Look at your friends in the present. So coming in here once a week and hearing me give a religious pep talk might inspire you, but you want to know what you're going to be like in two years? Look at the friends that you're around. And you got to have a community that shapes you, and that community is the people of God. Parents, your kids' friends are the future them. And I'm going to tell you, listen, hearing a religious pep talk once a week from an awesome youth pastor is not going to make a difference for them spiritually. It's when the church and the people of God become their community. The church should not be an event that you and your family attend occasionally on the weekend. It should be your community. It should be where you stand. It should be where you sit. You should walk in the way of the people of God. You should find your seat among the people that know God. Your best and your deepest relationships should be here. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, over the next several weeks, you'll hear us give you several opportunities on ramps. You could begin to volunteer. That's a great way for you to get to know other people and we could actually use the help. You could volunteer here. You could join the church. That's a novel concept, isn't it? Right? You could actually join the church. We call some of you common law members because you shack up with us on the weekend, but you've never actually made it official. You need to join the church and become a part of this community. Right? You could, you can get involved in a small group, you know, and, and get to know people, studying the word. You can get your kids involved in the student ministry. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be happy? And devote yourself to the word of God and the people of God. You see, here's what. Here's what I know. Psalm 1611, in your presence is the fullness of joy. And in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy means joy that could not be greater. Pleasures forevermore means joy that could not last longer. The greatest joy that lasts the longest time is found in God. I know that because I've tasted just a smidgen of it, not even that much. But I know where it's found. And I know that the only way you're ever going to get it is when you go all in with him. Right. Charles Spurgeon said the most miserable, unhappy person in the world, listen to this, most miserable, unhappy person in the world is the half-committed Christian. Because he is just enough into the presence of God that he's miserable in the world and just enough in the world that he's miserable in the presence of God. So I will say to to you what he said to his congregation. You want to go with Jesus? Go all the way. Go deep or go home. Drive your roots deep in the Word of God and the people of God or just take your toys and go somewhere else. Because you're, you're just miserable coming to hear me once a week. That's all you're miserable because that's not what walking with God is. You cannot be serious about a relationship with God if you don't have a deep commitment to the Word of God and the people of God. And I know that's getting all up in some of your face, but it's the gospel truth. You are not serious about your relationship with God if you do not have a deep commitment to the Word of God and the people of God. You want to be happy? Go big, go deep. If not, go home. That's right. That's right. He puts before us two ways to live. Which way are you living? You want to be happy? You wanna be happy? Drive your roots of your soul deep in the gospel. Why don't you bow your heads with me all, at all of our campuses if you would? You wanna be happy? It's in the gospel. Maybe some of you just realized that you don't have a place to put the anchor of your soul because you don't know for sure that you know God. You could not tell me with absolute certainty that you've been reconciled to God. The gospel that I have referred to is the news that God looked at you in a sinful state and he cared so much about you that he took your penalty of sin upon himself. That the reason you feel separated from God is because you are separated from God. But God reconciled you to himself in Christ and says that if you will repent and believe, he will save you. Repentance means you simply acknowledge that he's God and you're not, that he's the Lord and he's in charge. Believe means you believe that he did what he said he did to save you and you receive it as your own. Repentance is the most natural thing in the world because it's acknowledging the truth. Believing means taking what God has offered to you. He extends his hand to you right now and says, come back to me. And he can right now, if you open your heart to him, fill your soul with a joy and a permanence that the world can never take away. Do you need to do that? Open your heart to him right now. Maybe you are a believer and you do know that you know God. Maybe you should chew on this. Maybe you should meditate on it. Why don't you think about where you were when Jesus saved you? Why don't you think about the mercy that he showed to you? Why don't you think about the promises that he has for you? Why don't you think about the fact that the almighty God has reconciled himself to you and says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus that nothing can separate you from my love that I has not seen nor has he heard nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And Why don't you meditate on that until it captures your soul? I'm gonna ask our deacons and their teams are gonna come forward. You keep your heads bowed. They're going to come forward and they're going to begin to distribute the elements of what we call the Lord's table. What a great way to end this message. Believers, you're going to hold in your hand the bread and the cup, which symbolize the anchor for your soul. This presence that God gives to you is never taken away. And it means that whatever season you're in right now, whether it's a season of drought or a season of blessing, this is your joy. It's like I told you last week, God doesn't always promise to deliver you from the storm. Sometimes he gives you his presence in the storm. I want you to hold these things in your hands and think about this is mine. It never goes away regardless of the seasons of my life. As they're passing these out, if you're not a believer, these things are not for you. I don't mean that to be exclusive. It's just that Jesus gave it to his followers as something for them to do with him. So if you don't know for sure that you've ever trusted Jesus as a savior, then let these things just go right by you. But see, what's offered to you is even greater than the symbol. What's offered to you is is Jesus himself. And maybe while others around you were taking the bread and the cup, you could, for the first time in your life, receive Christ as Lord and Savior. That's 10,000 times greater than the bread and the cup. So while others around you take the bread and the cup and they hold it, why don't you, right now, turn over control of your life to Jesus and and receive, receive him? You hold these things, believers, in your hands, and in just a minute our campus teams will come and they'll lead you in the taking of the bread and the cup.